Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Nuggets from this section of Nassau here would be, first off, why should we care about these ancient instructions about these um, for a vow that really cannot be fulfilled without the temple? Because, you know, we're talking about a Nazarite vow, and this vow is finished where? It's finished at the tabernacle or the temple. So the instructions here about vows and then also about this long section of gifts. You might have noticed chapter 7, highly repetitive. I mean, wouldn't it just been better to just skip to the, I mean, those last few verses, you could have just said, okay, these people gave this stuff and then be done with it. But no, it went through every single one of those 12. 12 tribes were all detailed with those gifts. And all their, divs, their gifts were given in excruciating detail. So you wonder, well, what, what should we get out of this? Because when we look at where we are in this particular section of Bamidbar or Numbers, see that this is kind of cutting halfway into a section that started really in chapter 3 with this numbering of the service of the Levites. So detailing what it is that the Levites are doing, what their particular tasks and their roles are. So we left off last time with the service of those of the family of Kohat. And today we are kicking up with the section on the service of the Gershonites or the, the descendants of Gershon and also the service of the Merarites. And then the completion of the census or the counting of the Levites. And then continuing on with uh, chapter 5, really going through chapter 10, talking about these uh, commands about purity of the people, similar to what we saw back in Leviticus. Remember Leviticus? In uh, the chapters, it was really like 18, 19, 20, where it went on with great detail about these sorts of purity laws amongst the people. So let's just kind of go into a little bit about this section that we're looking at here in Numbers, Numbers chapter 4. Now the background of this is, remember then chapters 1 and 2, it was about the census and the camping arrangement. Last time we, we saw the arrangement of all the tribes around, around the Mishkan, everything focused on the tabernacle because the tabernacle is the dwelling place of God where he is dwelling amongst his people. So everything is oriented around that section, around the, the tabernacle. Then Numbers 3 and 4 was talking about these, these families, the families of Levi descended from three sons. And then each of those sons, Kohat, Gershon, Morari, were each given different roles. And we talked about the foreboding with Kohat <laughs> that would, uh, we're going to encounter the family of Kohat later on in this book uh, to a very 
ignoble, <laughs> ignoble end on that. But one of the things that you see with this counting is that this is counting all of the males of Levi from one month old and up. So you think of how much work a one month old is doing? <laughs> Not a lot, but still counting into the whole. They are still a contributor into the whole because the service of all of the tribe of Levi was to service the dwelling place of God. And that service began at one month old. So gives you a bit of a perspective of why we should not uh, treat infants as being expendable because that is hardly something that's expendable. And even in the chapter we just looked at, with its high repetition in chapter 7 of Numbers, one of the lessons there is that each one of those tribes is a part of a whole. Yes, they all had one collective gift, the 12, 12, 12, and then 60 and 60. So these gifts did add up to a whole, but each one of those parts was extremely important. So, yes, the whole is important, but also the individuals are important. And that is a theme that you see repeatedly throughout the word. And it is having that in view of the whole and the individual is hugely important when you start looking at the prophecies related to the Messiah. Because especially when you get into the prophets like Isaiah, they will, you'll see that some of the prophecies are collective, some are individual. Some refer to Israel as a whole, some as refer to Israel as a person or individuals in there. Some of the judgments come collectively, some of the judgments come individually. But they are all a part of each other, which is why you have that the Mashiach is the quintessential son of Israel, the quintessential Israelite, because that one represents the whole, and the whole represents the one, and back and forth. So that's why when you start seeing, like in uh, Romans chapter 11, without that view of what the Torah communicates about this, Romans 11 seems weird. Why is Paul going on and on that you have to have this whole being brought together? Why is that important? Because, you know, okay, some people don't get it. Just kiss them off, and then the kingdom of heaven goes on its way. No. That's not... We should be thankful that that's not how the kingdom of heaven works because there could be points in, in our lives where you can say, well, boy, okay, that's, we're in the heaven's reject pile. But no, similar to what Paul was reflecting, you know, you have to have this all Israel to be saved at some point. Have every opportunity for that. So you basically have to stiff arm the kingdom of heaven to get out of that. Because one of the things that Yeshua said is that um, as the kind of time period that we're going through in the Torah club right now with the final address, the ending chapters of John, where 
And it's like the Messiah is praying, it's like the, the ones that you've put into my hand, I have not lost, except one that was foretold to be the son of perdition. Why? That was a role that was going to happen, but Yeshua said, what? Woe to that one that is in that role, that decides to jump out, leap out. So when you see that, that picture of the one and the whole and the whole and the one, that's a, a very important lesson that we get because we in the Western world and especially in the American uh, understands of things, we can get very individualistic and think, oh, you know, this just speaks to me. And if it doesn't speak to me, then I don't care. No, this is a message to us as the body of Messiah, us as the commonwealth of Israel. And it may not speak to me, but it speaks to us. So if we have a problem, we should be concerned about it. If we are having doubts, we should be concerned about it. And that goes back into what you start seeing about what the Messiah and the apostles consulted about, about watching out for those people who need help. Someone falls down. Someone is struggling. You know, you don't just walk by. That's the whole point of the the Good Samaritan parable. You don't just walk by. You see the concerns of other people. That's heavily grounded in the Torah. So, some of what we uh, see also, some lessons in this, and in the lessons of Kohats, and they're in Numbers chapter 3, as we get introduced to him, and then the beginning part of chapter 4, and that uh, reminder there, Elizaphon, the son of Uziel, is the president or the Nasi. Um, You see later on, as you get into the apostolic times that each congregation has a nasi or a president, a president of the congregation that is one who leads it forward and and kind of directs things. They're not necessarily the one who's up flapping their gums all the time, but it's the one who people look to to say, okay, um, let's make a wise decision and move forward here with that. So. With out of Kohats, the high priests who served in the Mishkan came from Aharon, the grandson of Kohat. So, very interesting that you have a little bit of a subset in this. Now, the duties of Kohats were the Ark of the Testimony, the table, the bread of the presence, the menorah, the altars, the utensils, the veil. Very interesting. Because their part was the veil. It would be interesting as we look into one of the other groups of people. Now, their responsibility was the touch points between heaven and earth, and that includes the veil, the the points where heaven is you know directly contacting the people of God there in the holy and the holy of holies. Now, as we go into Gershon, that what I was talking about with the veil being a part of Kohat, very interesting. 
So their leader of them was Elisaf, the son of Lael. Their duties were basically, it was curtains for them. Literally, curtains. Every, everything that was a curtain except for one curtain, very interestingly enough, was theirs. It was the, the tent, the covering itself, the screen for the doorway to the tent, the curtains of the court around the tent, the screen to the doorway of the court, and all the cords and stuff that goes with it. So there, uh, yes, Alex, we have a, a comment. Hold on, hold on just a moment, please. Go ahead. Am I jumping ahead by going to the axe? <laughs> Well, we, 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 we will be talking about okay. the Acts. That's why that is a parallel reading to what we're talking about right. today, because it's specifically going to get into um, chapter 6, where it talks about the Nazir vow. Because well, that, that is what I, one of yes, the things I wanted to talk that, about. That is, that is specifically why. So we can read Acts chapter 21, and um, I come from a tradition um, itself that reads Acts 21 as... Uh, an alternate reality that basically um, Paul screwed up. He bowed to peer pressure, so to speak. And so he went along with this vow. Well, the problem was, is that if you don't really have a good grounding in what the Torah says about the Nazir and what the Nazir does, what's involved with the Nazir vow, what's involved with the ceremony of it, then you kind of miss the point of, that's why uh, it was good that we went through this section that includes not only that, but also his first controversial hearing and where he created a riot, <laughs> where he was, you know, tried to... They were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him. Yeah. And then they really tried to kill him after he tried to explain himself. Well, yeah, there were yes. a lot of things that are touched on in the Acts. Yes. We hear, you know, I've been deep diving on this stuff for yes. over a month now, as you know, about that very early church um assassins were there and a lot of it i assume had to do with you see the purity of the temple but at this point in time there's impurity going on in the temple that's why a lot of them were nazarites because they couldn't even guarantee the meat and they they said look i'm just going to go to vegetarian and that was they even said james was that so there was you had the assassins, uh, which are almost descended out of the Maccabees or the Masada folks. And Paul mentions the assassins. There are people around who are going to try to kill people like Paul because he's going against the law and the zealots for the law. So you had a lot of these players going on, but there were plenty of Nazarites. And Jesus' brother, James, it's assumed, was head of the church at that time uh, during Acts. As Paul's, and he was a Nazarite, and he was zealot for uh, the law. So there was a lot of factions going on because of the impurity of the temple. Yeah, is what they were but saying. To but also, it was all based on the fact that there was a temple still. So right. yeah, I'm curious to say, after the temple was Paul somehow a visionary as well to go? Things all going to go away, and I got to get the word out of here. And, spread it to the greater world, but a lot of these same people who refer to the Nazarites and whatnot, they're ready to throw Paul under a bus any right. time, any day. Well, um, a preview of what we're going to get to when we get to the discussion there of Acts 21 is what got him into trouble and what any of these folk who were seeking purity of the temple and thought the temple was impure and this and that and the Paul was 
causing more of it, completely misunderstood the Nazarite vow, even if they were taking one. They completely misunderstood it because the very, um, the very parameters of the Nazarite vow is essentially wrapped up in what Paul was saying that he was doing in taking the message to the nations. Because preview coming attractions, that is what the Nazarite vow does. It takes the priesthood to the nations and in a small microcosm to the 12 nations that were a part of one nation, to the 12 tribes. Because what did the Nazarite vow do? And we'll get into a little bit more in that when we get into chapter 6. But basically, if you compare the, the, um, the dedication of uh, going in, going out of the Nazarite vow and what the Nazarites did in their service, similar to the Kohanim or the priesthood. So what are you doing? You are taking the priesthood, not totally just opening it up to everybody, but opening up and inviting them in to that special type of purity. Now, for those that were opposing this, taking it to the nations, they were completely misunderstanding what the whole Nazarite vow was all about. So that is why it's actually very important to understand what the Nazarite vow is to then say what Paul was doing was perfectly in line with it. And then when you see how that fits in with Acts chapter 10, when Peter has this vision that the nations are being lifted up, that, they are being, that there is a kadash, they are being separated from who they were before, elevated up to heaven. So who they were before is now being transformed. That is the same thing that the Nazir is. They are before, they are elevated up to a special role. And that special role can fall apart quite easily. Dead bodies, all kinds of things can make them have to hit the reset button. Yes. The Nazarite, there's kind of the seven-day one and the one from birth, like Samson. And even Paul said, whenever they say, from my mother's womb, it kind of means oh, you're marked. I've given you to God forever. So is there two different kinds of Nazarites there? Um, well, the Nazir has to be something that is de- declared. And uh, seven days is just the, basically the detox from the Nazir vow. Um, the Nazir has to be, well, I, could, I should say, the, it was decided at some point that a Nazir is not something that you stumble into because it is so sacred in what you are undertaking for yourself. You don't just stumble into it. You have to say, I am specifically doing this, and I'm doing this for this amount of time. Now, for the section that we just looked at in the Haftarah section from uh, Yahushua on the um, Samson, that was his parents. He himself did not even declare that. And you might even say for um, uh, Yohanan, the John the Baptist, um, that is, it's debatable as to where his Nazir started, 
you could say that a lot of the dedication messages that went to his mother and his parents were perhaps a part of that. Doesn't say expressively, but um, potentially. But it's just one of those things that the Nazir is an extremely special vow that is taken, and that is takes the priesthood in a small sense and opens it up to the people. But a Nazir, just as Paul talks about with his uh, metaphor of the body and its parts and hands and feet and all that stuff, you know, the Nazir is not a Kohen. But similar to a Kohen, you could see really the Kohen's right-hand man, so to speak, but not a Kohen. But as a small taste of the Kohenim. So just as you could be one of the other tribes or out of the extended family, the, co- the commonwealth of Israel, brought into the sort of the service of a priest through the Nazir, um, you are not a Kohen because that was not your assigned role. And that's similar to what we saw with some of the earlier parts and in the, in the last Torah reading about people with um, deformities and such, and that's probably a good place to uh, head at this point in time as we uh, trek back into this. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's to jump into yes okay let's take take a look into chapter five here yeah um this and a, a very interesting point of where we're we're seeing in chapter five of numbers that uh, purging out the things that don't belong now there are a lot of critics of the Bible that jump in at this point in time, and like we mentioned in our last Torah section, we're like, you know, what, what is this? Just because you've got some sort of a, an injury or a deformity, then you're kicked out of the family of God? No. It is about what the role is signifying. You know, we have this small little view of what roles signify. For example, you know, it used to be that a leader was somebody who you could see has the character that would inspire other people and their character was above the character of other people. But over time, that's now just devolved into a popularity contest where people who have quote name recognition unquote, and just you happen to remember them when you were at the ballot booth and yeah okay i remember that guy i have no idea i saw a sign by the road i have no idea what he stands for but i know him i don't know anybody else so i'll vote for him and that's frustrating but that can be where things go if you leave things up to popularity contests but in the sense of the priesthood they are assembles of things that are going on, a symbol of things that are happening, which is actually quite a very important point where you have in chapter 6 the combination of the Nazir vow and also the combination of the <laughs> this section they're talking about the Nazir and also 
um, as we're talking about the uh, chapter 5. So chapter 5 ends with the section of the jealous husband, and then chapter 6 goes into the Nazir. Now, the interesting part of this is both of these are little microcosms or pictures of who? Israel, in a sense. So you, you wonder, well, okay, in Numbers chapter 5, it goes on and on and on there about the, this uh, issue with the woman who has uh, the sus- suspecting that she is um, involved in some sort of dalliance. Well, what is it that is actually being talked about here? When you see down through time, we really have very few, really one good one example that what we see in num- Numbers chapter 5 was ever actually done. And we see that in the Gospels, where the woman caught in adultery was brought to Yeshua. And that really wasn't even following along with what the Torah was saying here. But that's about as close as you get to having any sort of record where what is talked about here actually was ever done. But it was done, actually, in Israel's history. So what do you see when you read the prophets talking about what Israel had done to the Lord, to the creator of heaven and earth, leading up to the exile? Playing the harlot, yes. Playing the harlot. So thus, when you see that picture repeated again and again throughout the prophets about playing the harlot, then you start looking back into what this instruction is, and it starts making a lot more sense about this. That, okay, wife, wife of Israel, the bride, are you truly blameless? If you eat, uh, think about the components of this. Dirt of the floor of the sanctuary. Holy ground, so to speak. And what's the other component? Water with what in it? It was the dirt from the sanctuary. What else is in it? The ink from the curse that was written on it. And the curse was basically you were testifying, but I'd, I didn't do any of this. So Israel's curse written out there leading up to the exiles washed off into the cup with the dirt, the holy ground of the sanctuary into it, made to drink from it. And what was the sentence that you see in this particular passage? Yes, basically it's um, infertility is, I guess, a way to kind of put, put that uh, lightly. Infertility of it. Now, it's a very interesting thing that this infertility of Israel had to be cured from this situation. But 
where did this infertility of Israel get turned around? When Israel was brought back, was re remade, born again, brought back into the land out of exile, then Israel started to have more children. More children. Then it was truly fulfilling that prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the first temple, that this would be a house of prayer. Interestingly, to your point there about Acts 21, with Paul at the Nazir and the temple, and they're worried about Gentiles coming in, was that this would be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, that promise was to reverse the infertility of Israel that led to the exiles and in the exiles. But then coming out of the exiles to be fertile again and to bring children. So in this, in this part here, uh, some of the interesting aspects that we get from the um, but before we head into just the discussion of the Haftarah portion, any last thoughts as we close out this section? Yes, Carrie, go ahead. So I'm kind of looking at a few different pieces yes. in parallel here. Um, so I know there were a few exceptions, but basically the Nazir was a way for a normal person to serve in the temple like the priests did, right? I mean, yes. the priests, they were given that service by birth. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not like serving as, you know, substitute priests. Right. But they are alongside. Right. So, you know, I've grown up in biblical communities, and um, in my experience, we tend to focus a lot on, well, it sets the Nazir apart from the regular people and this and that. But actually what I was looking at today is how inclusive that act really is from God um, to make a process. He created a process for the normal person to do something that's set apart, consecrated, sacred. Um, So in that way, and then I was thinking about, um, so the the jealousy test is something as a woman, it bothered me for decades. Um, because of the way that it's normally taught about. Yep. And um, I read something several years ago that helped me focus on the flip side of that. Um, and what they pointed out was that, you know, so easy to just look at it and like, oh, well, what if she's guilty and her husband's accusing her and that's a horrible place to be in. But the reality really is that what God did by even setting that up in the first place is he created a supernatural way for that woman to never have tongues wag about her ever again for the rest of her life. Like, he created this supernatural um, vindication, basically. Um, And so what I was thinking today, because I was like, why do they have that right there? (laughs) Just What in the world? Um, But what hit me was, um, he's talking about the priesthood and their services. And then he's talking about this process that a normal person can follow to kind of become part of the priesthood, at least for a specified period of time, right? Right. And then we bring up the jealousy test. And of course, 
there's the wife and the husband, and that's always prophetic about God with us. Um, and then I thought, oh, okay. And because then I was asking, well, why did Paul need to do a Nazarite vow to prove that he was still walking in Torah? Like, why did they pick that? I mean, there's so many other things. The guy already ate clean. There are so many other ways that he was already walking in Torah that would have been obvious. So why did he have to do that specifically? So then, um, what, all of a sudden what hit me was the... The concern was about the Gentiles coming in. Yes. And, uh, you know, there's the whole picture. With, there's the sheep with the animals and yes. Peter. And, and God told him, mm. don't call what I say is clean, unclean. Mm. So to me, it was like, oh, well, that is parallel with this jealousy test. Yes. Because the bride is being falsely accused, yes. potentially. And then he is the one that lifts her up and says, nope, she's totally clean and whole, and nobody can deny that anymore. Then there's this specific process that a person has to follow to become part of a set-apart group, which that's what the Gentiles need to do. And then also the leadership, they set up those rules and acts anyway. Yes. So it just kind of all like came together in a yes. ball for me. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. Because when you uh, look at some of the uh, descriptions and like the Sumerian texts about how women were were treated, that idea of accusations um, kept women basically down because of the threat of that accusation of infidelity and the capital punishment or something nearly as bad that went along with it. Um, was hugely subjugated to uh, women in other cultures. So that idea out there that you're basically taking this appeals process up to a a huge level that um, when, when you talk about the burden of proof, basically you're bringing this accusation and this accusation has to have this effect for it to be valid. You know, it's not the women, okay, you have to prove yourself. Uh, innocent, it is our old thing of innocent until proven guilty, innocent until proven infertile, where where you have this process that comes through supernaturally. So, very very uh, in, insightful, which is is why when I was talking earlier about uh, in Acts twenty one twenty two, where the folk that were bringing these accusations against Paul were just clearly not getting what the Torah was talking about. And very interestingly enough, Gershon, a very interesting aspect about Gershon's name, uh, just kind of kind of curious little note about Gershon. Uh, Gershon, I guess you might call him really a linen warrior because his name is uh, it means, it comes from the verb garash. And garash means to drive out or to cast out. So interestingly, the keeper of the curtains was about the barrier, to keep out, to, to, uh, to drive out. But what indeed was this mission of Gershon and the tabernacle supposed to be? Separation, but like with the sheet lifting up, 
the curtains were supposed to move out so that more people were being included in. Not just because they, oh, you just happened to be wandering around and blundered and somehow the, the curtains blundered in and included you now. No, it was that you wanted to be a part of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, and the boundaries expanded to encompass you, which is perhaps one of the interesting lessons. Oh, is somebody uh, on the phone here? Lee, Diane? It was me, but we, we went past the point that I, I just, something I wanted to share, but it's, it's okay in that. It, okay. Was the question asked, was there something about why did Paul take the Nazarite vow? I mean, he yeah, didn't we're really just, have to. Yeah, we're, we're uh, just getting to yeah. that. Yes, the Nazarite vow was a, was a voluntary one, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. Yeah, no, well, I, all I was going to just say is that I was reading in 1 Corinthians 9.22, and he said, he said, when I am with, he said, he, um, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. And I made all things to all men or all people that I might by all means save some. So when, to me, he, he took on things in order to, to, to let them see, like when he shaved his head and all that, so they could see that he was like one of them, so souls could be saved. And uh, along that's, that line. Yeah, in, interesting pr perspective. But, um, you know, one of the things also is, uh, just as Carrie is mentioning, the, the lesson that's in, encapsulated in the Torah instructions for the Nazir. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, and uh, th thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Please. So um, one of the interesting aspects about the walls and the, the curtains of the tabernacle is think about the dimensions of the tabernacle and the temple. What keeps happening to them as you keep hearing about them throughout the scriptures? A what? They come down? Well, the dimensions of the tabernacle keep getting bigger. So when you look at the dimensions of the tabernacle, it's actually kind of small. It's roughly, you know, 150 feet on certain sides of it, 100, 150 feet. Not really that big. If you see people who've done full-scale versions of it, it looks like, okay, it's a good-sized tent and maybe a good... Um, maybe size of a circus tent. Sometimes circus tents are even um, bigger than that. But then you start seeing Solomon's temple, those dimensions, much, much, much bigger than that. Then you start seeing the dimensions of the uh, Herod's temple and those dimensions bigger. And then you start seeing the dimensions of what's described in Ezekiel and in Revelation. Those dimensions are huge. Huge. Now, what has happened when those particular um, temples are described and those, those um, walls are put forth? You've had what happened to the nations? 
they're coming in. We we just celebrated that with Shavuot, so the nation's coming in. So thus, there's the phrase, we have a, a big tent. Are we a big tent community or a small tent community? So you start with the small tent, the tabernacle, but it keeps getting bigger, 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 bigger. But the interesting lesson of um, the Gershon is that, yes, the temple gets bigger, but there still is a separation between what's outside and what's inside. And it's not that those curtains and the walls ever go away. It is that the creator of heaven and earth just wants to keep bringing more people in. And as Carrie astutely points out, points out, yes, there is a way that you go from who you were before to being closer into the service. We talked about that with Leviticus as it goes through this process of bringing your offerings in. But this with the Nazir is you are bringing yourself in as a servant into this mix. So wonderful uh, aspect of that in there as well. So let's get back to what um, Alex was talking about with the, pa- the passage there from Acts chapter 21. Now, the very interesting thing that we have with that and Paul's ex- experience is that as we saw back in the Torah, this is a voluntary thing. What was the instructions and what did the situation come up that Yaakov or James said, hey, go along, sponsor them, pay their, pay their expenses, meaning we, we read in Numbers chapter 6 what's involved with coming down or finishing out your Nazir vow. There's all kinds of stuff involved with that and over a seven-day period. And then also to purify yourself along with that. So we see that this particular experience is something that uh, is quite interesting that this tent was expanding further. We an example of this here in John chapter 4, uh, talking about this particular situation of expanding the tent. John chapter 4, verses 21 through 24, where Yeshua said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that was a lesson that had to go to the people of Israel. And if you read Ezekiel, a part of Ezekiel was that lesson that you had to understand what was happening inside of you you get the picture of like when the prophet is told to dig through the wall into the side of the tabernacle. Take a look at what's going on inside. What was happening inside of the tabernacle was just awful. It was the practices of pagan gods happening inside the temple of God. The corruptible things of the outside were happening inside of the temple. 
the heart of the people was corrupt. That which was supposed to be set apart, that Gershon, the garage, was supposed to be, well, their garage or their garage door was open and all this stuff, all the junk of the nations was piled up inside the temple, so to speak. So they had lost their distinction between what was apart from God and what was with God. So very interesting picture. So with this also, um, Paul, uh, when he was... uh, uh, So one of the last things that um, to note is that some of the discussions that you might see in the Mishnah or the Talmud are reflections of something that happened centuries later. Some of the early writings in the Mishnah might be within a couple hundred years AD. And some argue for earlier than that, but reliably they are dated to a couple hundred years AD. So you get a picture of what temple might be like later on in history or what they thought it was like. But one of the things that you have the picture about with the Nazir vows, just like we were, we were talking about earlier, is you had to be very specific in going into them. You just didn't blunder into them. Just like with the dwelling place of God, you don't just blunder in because what happened to two particular people of the priesthood that blundered in to the dwelling place of God. Yeah, burned up. We read about them in Leviticus chapter 10. So, Alex, yes, you had a comment or a question. Or, again, with what I've been reading up on, um, the, as far as Yeshua may have been a, Nazar- a Nazarite, because you may have heard this theory. Nazareth was really not much of a town. Even Josephus never even mentioned the place, mm. although he was in charge of that whole area. Um, so it could have been Yeshua the Nazarite or Nazarene. Um, that, I don't know if you've heard that. It would have been a bit difficult considering about the whole Cana experience, about uh, you know, making wine and stuff like that. Um, and his, you know, there's different ways that you can take the, the passage that, you know, he was declared to be a drunkard. Um, but the idea that he was at least consuming wine. So thus, that would not be a Nazarite. Now, one could potentially say there is a point at the um, Passover Seder where he says, I will not drink of this again until I drink it anew in the kingdom. So potentially you could be saying, okay, that might be something close to it. But again, <laughs> when, you're, when you're seeing what the um, apostles eventually reflected upon, one of those apostles uh, reflected on that in the letters to the Hebrews, um, the need for the Nazarite was not really something that Yeshua needed to go in toward because his um, priesthood 
would be parallel but separate from the Aaronic priesthood. And in a sense, that's one of the things that's argued in, in the book of Hebrews, that it was um, transcendent to the Aaronic priesthood. And the Aaronic priesthood was, you could say, a subset. They served the particular role when the temple and tabernacle are functioning. You know, they go into effect when it's there, and when the, the tabernacle temple is not there, um, then they have to do something else. Go back to their <laughs> really role of being educators, teachers, etc. Or as you might say in the Gospels, meddlers and <laughs> other things that you see can happen if you have a priesthood that is not um, as faithful to their uh, calling and their separation as they should be. Yes? I'm going to also follow up to his role. Um, he was clearly... Uh, with John the Baptist and either later mm. seeing James, he was of the um, repent, the uh, zealots. Ah, the zealots. Uh, where Judas was of the assassins. Mm. Oh, there was an assassin in the clan. Yeah, well, th- that idea of the, the, the zealots, they were definitely, we would call them today, terrorists. <laughs> yes, they're definitely definitely terrorists but you also have a situation where not all of the zealots were terrorists they were as as the the term comes around you know those with zeal some people are reckless zeal other people are faithful and zeal under under control so some people get wild with their zeal other people put their zeal into firm action. And that's interestingly one of the one of the pictures when you take the we were talking about earlier with the uh the temple um the 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 temple tabernacle policy of the um adulterous woman that that is something where you have the jealous or the zealous husband. Now, with that, you take that picture for the Lord. The Lord talks about him being zealous for his people. Jealous. Is that a blinding, um, unthinking rage? Some critics might say so, that, that the Lord's Jealousy is like that. It's just completely unthinking and unreasoning, uh, irrational uh, exuberance, and um, to the point of stalking. But the other point is, is that, as we've said from the very beginning of the whole Torah, what is the role of the people of God here on earth, starting from Abraham and Noah and the others? What is the, what is the role here? Priests, witnesses, but like Noah with the boat, get on the boat. Abraham, you know, be the leader. He was a chieftain leader. A, it's a, a um, had his own mercenary army that was uh, formidable for the people of the time. But theirs was to be a beacon for the world in there, and they they were a beacon for the world, but. Did the people get the message? Get on the boat. 
Now they rejected the message. Or they followed the example of Avraham. Some did to certain degrees, some of the surrounding nations, but for the large degree, not really. I mean, you know, Avraham and his descendant children um, having challenges, you know, eventually ending with Ishmael being a big challenge and Ishmael's descendants. Yes. Fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look yes. at it, I was raised by a wordsmith and my father was an English professor. Mm. He said, always go to the core, especially when you are reading the word of God, mm. go to the core, core definition of jealous. Yes. There are, a, there's a flip side. We yes. always think of, oh, um, I, I want you, nobody else can have you. But there's also jealous for. He wanted to protect these people. He was upset when others tried to defile them. So when I look at this, I am a jealous God. I see it on the flip side. Not all the negative connotations that that word comes up for with us today, but to protect, to keep sacred, to keep pure, to keep set apart, to keep holy. And so when I read these scriptures, I have to look, yeah, is, is he saying, I'm going to come down like a ton of bricks on you? Or is he saying, I am going to guard you from impurity? Right. Well, one of the interesting things, yeah, she really brings up a very interesting point that the lifting the hood on the Torah a little bit, that word that's used in that particular chapter uh, for jealousy, the jealous husband, is from the Hebrew word of kinah. And kinah is used in uh, the lexicons, have it in kind of two main buckets of senses, one of which is envy, meaning you want somebody else's property. And the other is a, uh, what we call jealousy. You want to keep what is your own. So envy, you want someone else's. Jealousy, you want to keep what is your own. Now, what is, you could say, toxic jealousy? You don't realize you've lost it. You may have had it at some particular point in time, but because of probably because of your own behavior, you've lost it. But you still think that it's yours, and then you just keep trying to grab it and drag it back in. That's really toxic jealousy. Jealousy that destroys. Now, the interesting things that you uh, see going on in the Word, um, you know, for example, like with marriage, and very interesting how that's come up in recent years. And Genesis 2 4 about the two becoming one flesh. If you are seeing like the jealousy that's described here, this kinah being jealous, if you have something that comes in and divides it, then you are really seeing your own self is being chopped off. Someone is trying to chop into that. Another example is in Exodus 20, verse 5, interesting with the Ten Commandments, as it leads up in there and talked about the Lord being depicted as like a jealous husband. Now, one of the things that you'll see 
throughout the word this this picture of the Lord as a jealous husband. Now, is that, and some critics might say, well, that's because this deity just doesn't get the message that the world just doesn't want the deity anymore. Or is it that you are seeing your family heading off a cliff? What, what would you do if you saw your family heading off a cliff? What would you do? Stop, run after them, do whatever you possibly can to get their attention. Yeah, just to try to bring them back in. Now, that is a very interesting picture of what the, this kina of the good sense that heaven does. It is the love sense out of a concern for, a hearts that are cleaved together like a man and a woman become wife and they become, as the scripture describes, as one flesh. So thus, this is a concern for each other. It's not a, a pride thing. And the person went off and, you know, I look like a fool. No, this is our family has come apart. Something has been driven in between us. We need to bring this back together. Which, a very interesting passage is where Kenai also shows up again, is a Song of Solomon 8.6, where it says, Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love, ahava, is as strong as death, and Kenai, jealousy, is as severe as Sheol. It flashes, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Now, we've talked in previous times about parallelism in Hebrew writings, especially Hebrew poetry, where you have lines that will say pretty much the same things or maybe contrary to each other, but you get this picture where the words build on or are opposed to each other but give you a stronger sense of meaning. So in this, you have this picture that the seal seal the the distinctive mark on the heart on on the the um, center point of the lord's actions and feelings are the love that is as strong as death and this kina now is this envy over something that the lord doesn't have or is this jealousy, love, over what is in the Lord's family and the Lord just doesn't want to lose and have people just go off into Sheol, into the grave? Love that is as strong as death. Ahava, that is as strong as Sheol, as the grave. And it says, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So when it talks about that the Lord is like a consuming fire, is it just that Nadab and Abihu, is that just the, the flame of heaven is just looking to just burn up everybody? No. Like you see like in Ezekiel 32, the Lord does not desire the death of the wicked, but that what? 
that all should be saved. Same thing Paul is talking about. Same thing that the appeal that goes out for the day of the Lord to Israel that had gone into exile to bring her back again to be what? The anchor point for the whole world to be a part of the big tent, the big temple, that this would be a place. So go to prepare a place. There'd be a, a lot of rooms in that place. So that's where we end things here today. Any last uh, thoughts as we uh, close out? Yes. Uh, it's kind of a minor point, but I wondered when they said that when they gave that description of the test of the, of the woman to see if she'd been unfaithful, and, uh, and it's, at the end of it, it says, if she doesn't, I forget exactly what the outcome was, but it said that the man shall be uh, innocent. And I'm wondering if, if, he's, if it turns out that she has not uh, been un unfaithful, does that mean, is he guilty of something there? Of, his, of, of slandering her? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that, that is a very interesting point, but you get the, the picture that there was um, at least perhaps a little inkling of something, suspecting something, but the point was, as Kerry pointed out, there was that vindication for her. Even if you know, he suspected something, he took it to you know, DEFCON 1 with making this accusation because in Israel, like in the surrounding nations around in Samaria, that kind of an accusation is a death sentence or almost as bad, banishment into um, poverty and death. Basically, it would result from that starvation. You're an outcast. So um, that accusation is not something to be taken lightly by any means. Something like he wanted to get out of the marriage for some reason. Oh, like, yes. Like we do, he's like exchanging well, two, tw two 20s for... Yes. You know, tw and, and see, that is where you see, uh, it goes into a whole other discussion in the Gospels where Yeshua brings this up because he was addressing this um, two views that were common there around the first century between the two Pharisaical schools, the school of uh, Shammai and the school of Hillel, and their views on uh, divorce, how you could declare a divorce. And uh, their views on divorce, well, can you just divorce someone for any reason whatsoever? Or is there, you have to have a very good reason for that? And a lot of people think about it from the, from the term of, well, I want to get out and I can't get out. But you bring up the point of what historically that issue actually is. I want to get out because I see somebody else or I'm bored, or whatever. That was a very common thing that happened. So I want to get out, so um, you know, it's almost like a, I divorce you. You click the divorce button, and yes, <laughs> three times, yes. And uh, then away she goes. Well, what Yeshua was pointing out, and he grounds it back into what? The Torah, back to Genesis. It's like, did you forget where the Lord created them, man and woman? And chapter 2 says, you know, 
they're come together, they're one flesh, and Yeshua goes on to say, hey, what God has put together, let no man separate. Not from the sense of a woman is being abused and she can't get out of it, but from the sense of a guy is bored and he wants to get out of it. He's bored with her. So he just wants some new fancy thing. So, no. Sorry, you got into this. Marriage, when it talks about a vow, very similar to the other vows. You commit, you say you're going to pay it. You go forward with it. If you are not willing to go forward with what you promise, don't go into it. So it is not something to go into lightly. And one of the challenges that you hear in in times today is that um, people may not want to go into marriage because they say, well, I've seen these people fail and those people fail and they get divorced here and it just chaos. It's better not to get married at all. But it's one of those things, well, then what happens as a result? You see that from those little decisions to maybe not go forward with that kind of a commitment, you end up with a worse situation where you've got children that may come out of unions where there is not a firm commitment into things, and they could have serious problems. Not everybody, but enough of them to make a huge statistical impact. There's enough of those particular situations that fall apart that creates a huge impact, especially when you see you get compounded upon uh, the good intentions of people that get put into public policy, where you have significant portions of demographics in, in the nations today that have no fathers in the home. So people trying to help ostensibly and end up just making a bad situation even worse. One flesh is like we have a corporation with many people, but it's treated by the laws. It was one entity. And I think God treats a married couple that way. And if you do have God fusing you together like that, it works. And if you're starting to fall away from that, you can come back to that because he will allow you to collect back together and become that one corporate entity and, and your marriage will work. And you, you do bring up a very interesting point because uh, one of the one of the challenges that is faced in the world today is with, um, you might have heard people talk about with, a, they call it a corporate social responsibility. It's now morphed into ESG with the environmental, social, and governance form of a corporation um, organization. But the idea is, is that with corporate governance, they are not... Um, they're not treating the leadership of their organization with responsibility. There's graft, corruption, um, just favors, grift, all kinds of things. Now, what is what is the um, what is the source of that problem? Was it the head of the corporation, the board, etc., or is it the people? that made those bad decisions. They went into their responsibility with not the character that they should have had to go into that situation. Same thing happens, corporation, family, organizations. If you have 
bad leadership, as the old aphorism goes, you know, rot starts at the head. So you have bad leaders. That's like when you go into Jeremiah and Ezekiel and you see them railing against the, they use the term shepherds there, the shepherds of Israel, the shepherds of the flock of Israel. If they are corrupt, the priesthood is corrupt, heaven help the people. I mean, literally, heaven help the people because they are left rudderless until you see Mashiach show up and he says, these are they're sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. So they see, hey, someone with authority showing up, not only just speaking words with authority, but with the ethics of authority of the Torah and the power of the creator of heaven and earth being expressed through these signs and wonders. So, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point of what um, the vision is Reality may be a bad situation, but the vision is a good one that you can have a great outcome. But just like with the Nazir, it is something that you have to say, okay, this is a goal that I want to pursue, and I will pursue this goal to its end. Now, you may go along, things happen, and you may need to, quote, hit the reset button on your Nazir. You got to basically end it, if you want to continue on it, you start it up again and continue on. Just like that with life. As the proverb says, you know, the righteous man maybe falls seven times. But what happens? It gets up. Yes. Has God in the middle of it. And he says, okay, I've fallen down again, but I'm going to get up. Because what is at the other end, what is here with me now, is... Um, God is in my midst, whether I'm you know, physically at the tabernacle or not. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.